Hello, it's good to have you with us here today. My name's Lloyd, I'm one of the pastors here at St Peter's Fireside and we're really glad that you're joining with us today. Um, our series at the moment um, is in the book of Luke and we've just begun that actually. Uh, so we'll be um, in Luke 1, uh, verses 1 to, to 5 today and we're looking at one of the first characters that, that any time is spent on and that's Zechariah. So why don't we pray now and ask God to speak to us as we do so uh, this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, Rock and Redeemer. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at waiting today. Waiting. So I want to begin by talking about uh, something directly linked with waiting. Marshmallows. Specifically, the marshmallow experiment done in the 1960s, and here it is described on James Clear, an author's blog. The experiment began by bringing each child into a private room, sitting them down in a chair and placing a marshmallow on the table in front of them. At this point, the researcher offered a deal to the child. The researcher told the child that he was going to leave the room for 15 minutes and if the child did not eat the marshmallow while he was away, then they would be rewarded with a second marshmallow. However, if the child decided to eat the first one before the researcher came back, then they would not get a second marshmallow. So the choice was simple. One marshmallow now or two marshmallows later. The question for you then is, would you have been able to wait? How long do you think you'd be able to wait even now? Well, we'll come back to these marshmallows, but keep these in mind as we um, go through um, what we have uh, before that. We have several examples of waiting in our passage today. The first is Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1 verse 5 says this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now Luke starts off by introducing us to the two key people in this passage, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I'm focusing on Zechariah today, and Alistair will focus on Elizabeth next week. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth are the Harry and Meghan of their day. Their pedigree is just so good. They're righteous before God. It's not perfection, but direction in the way that they walk before God and live blamelessly before him. But verse 5, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, it doesn't matter what century or culture you're in, not being able to have children is, is gut-wrenching but we'll have more on that next week. Then the scene changes in our passage. Luke zooms out from them and then takes us in verse eight to the center of activity for the people of God, the temple. Luke makes a shift because he wants us to see that as personally devastating as Elizabeth and Zechariah's barrenness is, it's actually a picture of something bigger. It's really about something else. The barrenness of Elizabeth's womb is also a reflection of the barren situation that the people of God find themselves in within the world. And that's why Luke takes us to the temple. You see, in ancient Judaism, the temple was the place where heaven intersected with earth. 
It was a place where the people and the priests would work out their relationship to God. But for so long, it had been barren. And for a long time, it had been barren. God had not spoken in hundreds of years, no prophets, no kings, no fulfillments of promises. The people of God were waiting. They were especially waiting for the promise of a true king, the Messiah. God had promised that the Messiah would come to establish his everlasting kingdom. But while they waited and waited, it was under the oppressive rule of Rome. It was just not how things were supposed to be. So now in verse 8, we join Zechariah in his place of work, the temple. He's a priest. In his day, there were around 18,000 priests on duty at the temple, a bit more than we have at St Peter's fireside. They would cast lots and essentially throw dice to decide who would get that once in a lifetime, if you're lucky, opportunity. And so it lands on Zechariah and it's a big, big day for him. It signifies that God has chosen him, that God has favour on him, that God has blessed him. And as he prepares to enter the temple, verse 10 says this, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside. It's a unifying moment of people coming together, waiting, praying and seeking God together. And so Zechariah heads in to the darkness of the temple, of the dimly lit temple, and he carries incense, a tangible smell, a picture of the hope that the prayers will go up to heaven and be heard by God. And so we see this couple waiting, we see Israel waiting, but we're focused on Zechariah as he represents the prayers of the people, as he re represents his and Elizabeth's prayers. Waiting has been hard. Waiting has been tiring for, for Zechariah. He hasn't seen God show up in his life and, and not in the nation's life either, but he remains dutiful. And then God shows up. Verse 11 and 12. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Very precise. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Now Zechariah burns the incense and an angel shows up and he's afraid, which is quite a natural response, I think. No one is expecting to see an angel. And I think it can seem like it happens all the time in scripture, but it's actually not um, that common. These are heavenly agents of God who only seem to appear when, when something significant is happening, where something of God needs to be done, something needs to be said. And the angel says to Zechariah in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Now here's the question, here's a question. Which prayer? Was it the countless prayers made through tears at night with Elizabeth? those prayers? Or was it the priestly prayers going on in that moment, asking that, that God would forgive the people of their sins, that God would restore Israel through the advent of a Messiah? Was it those prayers? Which prayers? God answers all of them. He hears all of them and he answers them. And some of us might need to be reminded that God hears all of our prayers. While sometimes, all the time, we want a green light. Sometimes we get that green light, but sometimes the answer is as, as, as obvious an answer as a green light. It can be a red light. And other times we get that amber light. We get called to wait. But God hears our prayers. He answers them. 
in verse 13 to 17, the angel says to Zechariah that God is answering both his private prayers and the prayers of the people of God. God will give them a son, John, which means the Lord has been gracious. Grace to Elizabeth and to Zechariah, grace to Israel. This son would prepare the way for the Messiah. He would prepare the way for Jesus and he would get this people ready. The prayers of the people of God are being answered. The waiting is about to end. Or is it? Let me zoom out for a minute again. We've seen Elizabeth and Zechariah waiting. We've seen the waiting of Israel. But also we see now the waiting of God. In a sense, God had been waiting. Waiting for the right time. Not a minute too early or a minute too late. God was being faithful to his promises and he was doing it in a timely way. This is what Luke wants us to see. God is faithful and nothing, no sort of barrenness can get in the way of God's promises. God is faithful to his promises. So then it's a little bit of a surprise what happens next. Because as we see that God is faithful to his promises and we see that, that Zechariah can take this to the bank, he quite oddly doesn't. And we get a glimpse into his heart. Verse 18 says this, Zechariah says to the angel, wait a minute, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Notice how he says that he's the old man, but he doesn't call his wife the old woman. He's smart. We're told he's righteous, but he's smart too. Well played, Zechariah, well played. But even with such wisdom, he, he doesn't know exactly how to talk to this messenger of God, this angel. He says, how, how shall I know this? And what he's really saying is, I don't know, how can I be sure? Is there a sign I could have? An angel says, I'm literally an angel. This is the sign that you're going to get. Yet Zechariah doubts. Now, it's worth backing up a little bit. It can't be the issue here that the issue is that he's asking a genuine question. It can't be because later in this chapter, Mary says to the angel that appears to her, how can this be? And she gets a very different response. There's something about Zechariah's doubt here. Doubt can be helpful, perhaps doubting our, our, ourselves or, or knowing what we don't know or admitting frailty. For example, we can say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But there's also doubt that actually eats away at our faith. It's doubting God, his word, his promises, his ability. This sort of doubt erodes our heart. It makes it brittle. It makes us bitter. It's the kind that makes you less likely to really trust in God or to wait on him. And that seems to be what's happening here with Zechariah. And there's a consequence for it. Zechariah is given what he asked for. Gabriel says in verse 20, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Here's the second sign to Zechariah. Muteness, silence. Now I think the consequence is a stunning demonstration of what doubt actually does to us. It silences us. What happens when you doubt if God really hears your prayers? You stop praying. What happens when you doubt if you can really find out if there really is a God? You stop seeking. What happens when you stop trusting God? You stop sharing about him. 
Know that God isn't against the honest, struggling, yet still trying doubt, but he is against the sort of doubt that cultivates distrust in him because it puts a wedge in our relationship with him. Now, here's the beautiful thing, having said all that in this passage. Zechariah's lack of faith and the doubt eroding his faith, it doesn't change God's loving, faithful, grace-filled action towards him. God isn't just faithful uh, to his promises, he's actually faithful to Zechariah as well. He doesn't bulldoze over us to bring about his will. He's not inattentive to our hearts. You see, God will deal with Zechariah's heart. He will overcome that unhealthy doubt festering in there. In verse 14, where Gabriel tells uh, Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness. The consequence of silence and eventual... Uh, the consequence of silence will eventually give birth to joy and gladness, and we'll see that in a few weeks. But for now, Zechariah comes out of the temple silent. Verse 22, he's unable to speak. Now, it'd be normal to think of this as a kind of punishment or as discipline. You doubted, now kapow, you're not going to be able to speak. But what if this enforced silence was an invitation to something different? What if the silence was an invitation for Zechariah into something different? What if God cared so much about Zechariah's soul that he wanted to transform even his waiting, the way that he waited? Because for the next nine months, Zechariah cannot speak. People outside the temple are wondering at the delay and he leaves the temple to quizzical looks and high fives if they did those then. He made hand signals to them, but it's hard enough to explain angel appearances with words in a sermon, never mind with just hand signals. Elizabeth conceives, and for the next nine months, Zechariah is silent. A new kind of waiting is forced on him that doesn't bring bitterness or doubt, but brings joy and gladness and a prayer of praise and prophecy that we'll look at in a few weeks' time. As new life grows in his wife, something new grows in Zechariah too. As a bump visibly appears on Elizabeth, a new kind of waiting will happen in Zechariah, a new kind of faith, of hope, of love. Think how much you'd be bursting with words and joy and excitement and all you could do with your face is this. But it needed nine quiet months for Zechariah to bring something necessary, to bring something new. He doesn't just wait, but he waits faithfully in this new invitation on the promises of a faithful God. And so that's our call. That's the application for us today. God is a faithful promise-keeping God. And the application for us, for us then is to, to wait God is faithful and nothing, no sort of barrenness can get in the way of God's promises. So for us, don't just wait. Wait faithfully on this faithful God. Don't just wait, but wait faithfully on this faithful God. It's a challenge to our waiting, to wait differently, to wait faithfully. Now, how can we do this? Uh, we live in an age where when we're not on the internet in like two seconds flat, we, we, we get annoyed and we throw things at the computer. We forget that it took time to dial up like only 10, 15, 20 years ago. We have food in a microwave and it happens in a minute or two. It was always hard to wait even before um, things came so quickly to us. 
we see it as a waste of time, don't we? If we're um, three minutes early to the bus stop and the bus isn't there, well, I've just wasted those three minutes. I could have just arrived on time. Well, that's how I think anyway. How are we to wait? Let me suggest three things for us um, as we move forward. Reframe our waiting, rely on the faithful God and refocus on his promises. Reframe our waiting, rely on the faithful God and refocus on his promises. So let's reframe our waiting. Let me come back now to the marshmallow experiment. Picture the scene. Kids are offered the deal. Eat one marshmallow now or wait until the adult comes back and you would get two. Some kids are straight in there, uh, straight into the marshmallow. It doesn't even touch the sides as it goes down. Others try to resist. They're like, oh, no, what should I do? Dancing around, looking at it, smelling it. And then they eventually um, eat it. Others uh, manage to hold off. And when the adult comes back in, joyously eat the two marshmallows that they now have. Well, let's go back to that blog. This study, published in 1972, uh, was a popular study that became known as the marshmallow experiment. But it wasn't the marshmallow or the treat that made it famous. The interesting part came years later. As the years rolled on and the children grew up, the researchers conducted follow-up studies and tracked each child's progress in a number of areas. What they found was surprising. The children who were willing to delay gratification and waited to receive the second marshmallow ended up having higher SAT scores, lower levels of substance abuse, lower likelihood of obesity, better responses to stress, better social skills as reported by their parents, and generally better scores in a range of other life measures. In other words, the ability to wait was found to be hugely significant. Now, what if waiting is really quite good for us. How might we get better at waiting? Well, one is to recognise the difference between active and passive waiting, okay? It's to kind of reframe our, our waiting so it's not just passive, but, but that it's active. Passive waiting is this. It's a hopeless situation determined by events totally out of our hands. We can't do anything about it. We twiddle our thumbs. We can't do anything about it. We escape, we numb, we distract, we take the edge off, we drown our sorrows, we lose ourselves in a binge watch, we turn towards our addictions. Now, that's the reality and we, we all go there at times. But what if we caught it and realised that's passive waiting as soon as it started and moved towards a more active kind of waiting? Henry Nouwen describes active waiting like this. There is none of this passivity in scripture. Those who are waiting are waiting very actively. They know what they are waiting for is growing from the ground on which they are standing. Right here is a secret for us about waiting. If we wait in the conviction that a seed has be, been planted and that something has already begun, it changes the way that we wait. Active waiting implies being fully present to the moment with the conviction that something is happening where we are and that we want to be present to it. A waiting person is someone who is present to the moment, believing that this moment is the moment. And so, don't just wait. Reframe our waiting to wait actively, attentively, deliberately, believing that something is growing in us, that can grow in us, faith and hope and love. Beginning to realise that maybe, just maybe, waiting is not as bad as everyone makes out. It can be good. 
Maybe God is waiting in this instant. Maybe I am to wait differently, to wait actively, to wait faithfully. And although it takes a realisation that I'm not all powerful and all in control, I'm actually not powerless. I have agency to choose while I wait. You have agency to choose while you wait and how you wait. What if you saw um, waiting in a way that it was reframed like this? Simone Vale writes this, Waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. Waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. What if it wasn't something that we had to run from and hide from and, uh, and, and despair when we had to do, but saw it as a foundational thing in our spiritual life? What if, in the words of a pastor called Ronnie Martin, God is, in our waiting, refining our faith, redirecting our hope, reordering our loves, and is making us wait in exchange for hope for him? What if waiting is a grace to us and making us wait is necessary to, to curb our busyness, our fearfulness, our anger? What if God has something powerful to do in growing something new in us in this moment? Let's reframe our waiting. Secondly, let's rely on this faithful God. That marshmallow experiment was first done in 1972. Um, more recently, the University of Rochester um, did another experiment, uh, a similar experiment, with, but with an important twist. Back to that blog again. The first group was exposed to a series of unreliable experiences. And there are two groups. The first group was exposed to a series of unreliable experiences. For example, the researcher gave the child a small box of crayons and promised to, to bring a bigger one, but never did. Then the researcher gave the child a small sticker and promised to bring a better selection of stickers, but then never did. Meanwhile, the second group had very reliable experiences. They were promised better crayons and, and got them. They were told about better stickers and they received them. You can imagine the impact that these experiences had on the marshmallow test. The children in the unreliable group had no reason to trust the researchers would bring a second marshmallow and so they didn't wait for very long to eat the first one. The second group, however, waited an average of four times longer than the first group because um, they were able to trust the reliable experiences that they had had. Now, where am I going with this? Lloyd, why are you slightly obsessed with marshmallows today? This is slightly odd. Let me say this. Reliable experiences allowed these kids taking part in the experiment to wait for longer. Unreliable experiences cut short the ability to wait. The blog goes on to say that delayed gratification can be trained, can be grown through reliable experiences. But what I want to say is this. We have a reliable God. And the more we see this, the more we will be able to rely on him, to wait on him, to wait faithfully for him. We have a reliable God and we see from this passage that Israel could rely on the promises of this promise-keeping God, even if it was centuries late. We see that Zechariah and Elizabeth could rely on the provision of this faithful God, even as they were old or, or advanced in years. We see that Zechariah could faithfully wait on the promise-keeping God as his enforced silence forced him to wait differently. We can rely on this God. I know that many of you are, 
are waiting right now for healing, for restoration, for a change in situation, for a new place, for this season to be over, for a child, for a life partner, for reconciliation, for justice in a, a broken land, for light at the end of a tunnel, for a small thing, seemingly small thing as, as a hug. Brothers and sisters, friends, look to this reliable God. Have faith in this reliable God. We can wait faithfully for this promise-keeping God. I wonder what experiences in your past are stopping you from waiting now that make you think that God can't be relied upon, that you might begin to see differently in light of this passage, that, that even when it doesn't happen in your time and in your way. God can be relied upon. You see, fear is a big factor in our struggles to wait. It's hard to wait when we're fearful because we want to run, we want to control. And man, we live in a fearful time. We fear infection, we fear difference, we fear an unknown future. But this passage reminds us of a faithful God who keeps his promise a God who is in control, a God who waits, whose timing is perfect. Now, as you wait, I can't say that what you're going to get is exactly what you are hoping for. It's not going to look exactly like you want it to. It might not come exactly when you want it to, but I'm saying this, that you can rely on him. You can trust in him. You can wait faithfully for him. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, says this, it is not lost time to wait upon God. It is not lost time to wait upon God. How can you reframe your waiting? How can you rely on this promise-keeping God? Yes, he's done these massive history-shaping things we see in our passage, but he's able to deal with the smaller things too. Until he does, would you trust him? Would you wait for him even when it hurts, even when it feels hard? Would you faithfully wait on this faithful promise-keeping God? Finally, let's refocus on his promises. We can rely on this promise-keeping God, so let's focus on what he promises. This sounds rather simple. Let's keep these promises at the forefront of our mind, because if he's a promise-keeping God... We need to be sure of what he promises and what he doesn't promise. Here are some uh, verses from the Bible. Are, are you soaking yourself in these? We have promises about God's goodness. Psalm 100. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. We have promises about God's being with us. Isaiah 40. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We have promises about God's provision. Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also along with himself give us all things? We have promises about God answering prayer. Luke 11. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. We have promises too about our salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And these are wonderful promises 
Notice what they don't say. Nothing about the not to 60 speed of your car. What square footage of house you will have, the colour of your spouse's hair, the temperament of your child, the rung on the ladder of your career, the number of zeros in your bank account, and nothing about the number of marshmallows you are promised. But God's promises are so much bigger, they're so much grander, they're so much better. Focus on them because they're sure. You can build your life on them. Why? Because for all the promises of God, find their yes in Jesus. Yes, 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 yes in Jesus. You see, there's a capacity for appetite in us that a whole heaven and earth full of marshmallows cannot satisfy, be they real or metaphorical marshmallows. But what if we are to discover that there is something more and we need something more, something less fluffy, less sickly, more solid, more satisfying? Let me read Revelation 21 few verses from there of what we're promised, what we're told we are to, to be sure of in the future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my child. Living water, bread of life, heavenly feast, perpetual light, open door, wipe away, wiping away of tears, a new city, a perfect home, an ultimate bridegroom, a victorious king, a glorious father, joy eternal, living hope, effervescent life. It's hard waiting for this. It's hard to wait. But what if there's opportunity for us in the waiting? God is faithful and nothing, no sort of barrenness can get in the way of God's promises. So don't just wait. Wait faithfully for this faithful promise-keeping God. Don't just wait, but wait faithfully for this promise-keeping faithful God.